Father, we are, we are assured in these moments of uncertainty that we face together that we are held fast by you. We are assured of that not because of some feeling that we have been able to generate, but because of what your holy word says to us. Your holy word lets us know that you will never leave nor forsake us. And because of that, Father, because of our faith in your word, because of our faith in you, we come to these times um, certain that you will lead us through. We don't know where the end of this will be for us or, or how quickly we'll be able to get back to normal. But we do know, Father, that every single second and every step of the way, we are held and kept by you. Thank you for being with us today. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we do apologize for the technical issues we faced early on. Again, that was completely outside of our control. Uh, some of you have experienced those technical issues for a couple of weeks now, um, and it was a minimal thing last week for just a handful of you. Obviously, it was a, a, a total breakdown of the streaming service today. They were able to get it rectified, uh, and so many of you I know now are with us, and we are glad that you are here. If you would please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Job. We do know, as John has pointed out, that today is Palm Sunday. And we are, are in the very beginning of the most important week of the year for the church as we celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. We will next week be taking a break from our series of messages from the book of Job to, to focus fully and completely on our risen Savior, but for this week on this Palm Sunday day, we'll continue our journey through Job as we look to it for help and guidance during this time of uncertainty and for some suffering in our world today. You know, it's human nature to want God to give an account for Himself when things are going badly for us in life, and in fact, there have been times in the last 40 or so years where people have, and I'm not kidding, sued God because of the complaints that they have. In 1970, the lawyer for Betty Penrose filed suit in Arizona against God for negligence because he had allowed Betty's house to be struck by lightning, and Betty won the, uh, the case by default when God failed to appear in court. In 2005, a Romanian prisoner identified only as Pavel M. filed suit against the Romanian Orthodox Church as God's representative in Romania, claiming that God was in breach of contract. He believed that his baptism was a contract with God, and God had failed on his end to keep him from the devil and therefore jail, and the suit was dismissed because the, the court ruled that God was outside of their jurisdiction. Closer to home... In 2008, uh, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers filed uh, an injunction against God because of harmful activities, things like floods and other natural disasters, and that case was dismissed because God didn't have an address where He could be served with papers. Now, we may chuckle at those examples, but they highlight the fact that people in pain, people who are going through difficulty will want God to tell them why. And so, they ask God questions. This is exactly what Job does. As a matter of fact, what Job is, is essentially the, 
the, the legal wrangling of Job with God. In essence, what Job has done is file suit against God. His friends are laboring under the faulty belief that only sinners suffer, telling Job that he must have sinned, and therefore that is why he is suffering. And so what Job does is he calls himself as a witness, he swears to his own innocence, and then he asks God over and over again to provide proof of his guilt. This is exactly what's happening in Job chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. Job says, then call and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Job is saying, God, tell me what I've done. Tell me why I am suffering. And his friends who are skilled at saying just the right thing to make everything worse, speak up, and they reveal the second faulty belief that we need to avoid when we are facing our own trials. That belief is, I must not ever question God. Now, at first blush, that might seem like wise counsel to some of our ears, but a little deeper probing of the matter will reveal two things. First of all, the idea that we cannot question God isn't supported by Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you took out every psalm where the psalmist asked God why, you really wouldn't have much left of the book. But the second idea, uh, but second, the, the idea that we must not question God is informed actually by lies which, if believed, will keep us from finding the comfort that we so desperately need when we are hurting. And Job's three friends reveal what those lies actually are. Lie number one is that the faithful, the truly faithful, don't question God. And you hear this lie from Eliphaz in Job 15. Listen as he kind of gets warmed up in Job 15:2 in speaking to Job. He said, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk, in words which can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God, Job, and hindering meditation before God. Those last words are really the heart of the matter for Eliphaz and show that he is practically recoiling in horror because he sees that Job asking any question of, at all of God is actually undermining the basis of faith. For him, the basis of faith is to never interact with God about the suffering that we are going through or the trials that we have and to simply never ask him questions. Eliphaz reasons that truly faithful people never question God and because Job is questioning God, he's showing his cards. In Eliphaz's way of viewing things, Job isn't as faithful as Job thinks he is, or as his friends have thought him to be in the past. So the question is, how do we know that what Eliphaz is believing here, that the faithful don't ever question God, how do we know that that is a lie? Well, we could, we could go to, to many different passages of Scripture to, to cite support that it is a lie, but let me just cut to the chase and mic drop it for us. The most faithful man who has ever lived, quoted from a psalm, Psalm 22.1 to be exact, during a moment of deep physical, emotional, and spiritual pain, and the psalm begins with a question, 
Here's the question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ cried out to God for an answer in the midst of his suffering. That's the best way I know to prove to you that the statement, the faithful don't question God, is a lie. Jesus did it. But lie too is uttered by Bildad, and it's this. Your questions don't matter. Here's how he opens his rebuke of Job for asking questions of God in Job 18, beginning in verse 2. He says, how long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we will speak. Are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? As Job is rebuking them for for getting on to him about all of this. He says, you who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock removed out of its place? Now to understand the full heft of what Bildad is saying here, you have to appreciate the remainder of his argument. You see, he's certain that the truth that only sinners suffer is something that is just completely baked into the universe. And the rest of Job 18 is Bildad riffing on what inevitably happens to those who are wicked. And he finishes by saying this in verse 21 of Job 18. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So Bildad is saying to Job, this is just the way it is, Job. So when he says back in verse 4, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock removed from out of its place, he's saying, Job, do you just want God to change all of the rules of the universe for little old you? He's saying, Job, your questions don't matter. That's just the way it is. And you can't change it by asking God a whole bunch of questions. So how do we know that's a lie? Because James 1.5 says that it is. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if I'm in pain and I want to know why I'm in pain, I'm definitely seeking wisdom from God. And God's Word wouldn't tell me to ask God for that wisdom if my question didn't matter. Lie three, The last lie that informs this faulty idea that we must not question God is the lie that says God won't listen. And Zophar is the one who speaks this lie. It's subtle, but it's definitely there. He goes on this rant because Job has had the audacity to tell his friends that they are miserable comforters. They they are truly terrible at trying to help him, and this hurts Zophar's feelings, bless his heart. So so he unloads on Job and accuses him of some hidden sin, and then he's actually celebrating his belief that God is destroying Job because of it. And he concludes with these words in Job chapter 20, verse 28. The possessions of his house, the wicked man, will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. He is amening the fact, celebrating the fact, that wicked people suffer. And therefore, he's celebrating the suffering of his supposed friend, believing that he has sinned. God's not going to listen to you, Job. 
Zophar saying, you know why? God won't listen to you because you're a sinner. And you are unworthy of God's attention. So how do we know this is a lie? Because of something we said last week. The basis of God's interactions with us on any level is grace. Now Zophar's right. Sin does cut us off from God's presence. But Zophar is only working with one piece of the puzzle. The missing piece is grace. And God in His grace will listen to the cry of a repentant sinner. And for biblical proof of that, just finger drop anywhere in the Psalms and you'll be good. So it is verifiably unscriptural that the belief, I must not question God, it can be sustained. And and the more we believe that we cannot question God, and the more that we share that truth with others while they are in suffering, the more damage we'll do to ourselves and others in times of real trial. Here's why. If we think we can't cry out to God and that our questions don't matter to God and that God won't listen to us, we will be cutting ourselves off from any interaction with the only being in the universe that can actually give us our comfort. And this is exactly what Satan wants us to do in a trial, to think we can't talk to God about it so that we're off on our own. Now, I have no doubt that this is making some of the more pious among us nervous, that there's hand-wringing going on in the homes. Oh, my goodness. The pastor is saying that we can ask God questions, and that doesn't sound right, and I don't know if my pastor loves Jesus, and, and all of these things going through. So let me address something about God's willingness to receive questions from us during a time of pain. There are some guardrails for this. Because we can never forget that the one that we are questioning is God. Nor should God's willingness to receive our questions be construed somehow as making skepticism a virtue or doubt a good thing that we should enshrine as I think some people do in our world today. Just after encouraging us to ask God for wisdom, James tells us why enshrining doubt and celebrating it and leaving it as a static thing in our lives is a terrible thing to do. In asking for wisdom, James says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. If if we just leave doubt as a static thing and try it and celebrate it, we're going to wind up being moved further away from God and in deeper despair rather than being moved forward in it. So it's not wrong to question God in our trials, but we need to remember two key truths to frame it as we do. Truth one, ask in faith. Ask in faith. Now, I'm not meaning ask in faith, name it and claim it so that God will lift the, the, the suffering that you're in like a, flog, like a, like a fog. There was a, a televangelist um, a few weeks back who got a lot of notoriety on the internet where he was just screaming in prayer, it's done. COVID is over. It's finished. And that day, 20,000 new infections showed up in the United States of America. I'm not talking about that nonsense when I say that we ask in faith. I'm saying that we ask our questions out of our faith. And in fact, 
asking questions of God can be a product of our faith and not contrary to it. The Bible has a word for these questions we ask in suffering. The word is lament, and laments are common in Scripture. There's one whole section of the book of Psalms dedicated to lament. There's one entire book in the Bible called, wait for it, Lamentations. And the most common reason for lament in Scripture is injustice observed and usually personally experienced. Psalm 43, 2, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Psalm 56, 1, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long do my, does my attacker oppress me. Uh, Psalm 69, 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. And then Lamentations 3, 46 through 48, all our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. And they're all just poetic ways of saying, God, why? Why am I suffering? And of course, Job's reply to his friends and actually speaking to God are lament. And with eyes and mouths full of complaints like these, you could be forgiven. If you have a hard time wondering how giving voice to these words is acting in faith and not contrary to it until you realize the one to whom the lament is directed, the Lord the only one who can do anything about the injustices of which they speak. And that is the faith of a lament, of a question. It is crying out in pain to the only one who can soothe it. It is going to the one who you believe can help. The lament itself is an act of faith because it is rooted in the conviction that God is listening and that God cares. And to ask a question in faith means that you know that you are going to the only one who can address your suffering. And what happens? Do you get your answer when you go in faith? Not all the time. Not all the time, but something else happens in that transaction that can hold you up. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah opens up about all that he is seeing and all that he is suffering. He actually compares himself to a fleeing animal, and God is just pumping arrows in his back as he tries to run away. And he just is saying, God, I can't get away from my suffering. I don't know why all of this is happening. But then, but then as he is voicing this lament to God, as he is going to the one who can who can take care of it, something triggers in his mind as he's considering God. And he says, but this I call to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When you ask God in lament why, you may not get your answer, but you'll get maybe something better you'll see a glimpse of a God who's Lord over all and who cares deeply for you and is giving you grace and mercy each new day. So, we have to ask in faith. That's truth number one as a guardrail 
with our questions. But truth number two, and we close with this, is this. You have an advocate. His name is Jesus. You have an advocate. His name is Jesus. Twice in the back and forth between Job and his friends in this section of the book, Job speaks of his confidence that he had an advocate in his case before God in heaven. In Job 16, verse 18, Job says this. Job 16, 18. He says, O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness, my advocate is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out to my tears that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Job is expressing confidence in this legal wrangling, in this kind of lawsuit against God that, that there is a witness on his behalf before God who would appear and speak to his righteousness. And he fleshes that out even more when he says this in Job chapter 19, beginning in verse 25. He says, it is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering, oh, that's the wrong one, Job 19, 25. It says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. The Redeemer in Job 19 is the witness of Job 16, the one who would come and plead his case before God, who would declare the righteousness of the one who is standing and suffering before God. And we know in Scripture that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, standing before God as our advocate, as the one interceding for us, that this is one of your righteous children. They're righteous not because of what they have done, but because of what I have done. And so in 1 John 2, 1, we see John write, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And Paul says this in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have an advocate. We are not left to ourselves to argue for our own righteousness before God when we are in the midst of suffering. We have one who is standing in our place, who has stood in our place and will continue to stand in our place. And on the on the strength of his own righteousness, carries us through as God's children to his face. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. Job's not steady in all this. In fact, he actually ends up saying things that he shouldn't and speaking to God in ways that he shouldn't. God will address that at the end of the book. But you really you really can understand that a man subjected to this kind of pain would, would have moments of doubt. And Job does, but they don't help him when he has those moments of doubt. But when he hangs on to the truth that God is the one to whom his question should be addressed, and he hangs on to the truth that he has an advocate on his behalf in heaven, keeping his case before God, he'll be able to ride out the storm. And that is my prayer for us, 
in whatever storm we may find ourselves in today. You can ask God why, but ask in faith knowing He hears you and is listening and holds the answer for you. You may not get that answer. You may just catch a glimpse of His goodness, but that'll be enough to carry you through. And remember, you have an advocate in heaven, and His name is Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we go through the trials of our lives, beyond just pandemics, but just the daily trials of our lives, we will understand that we can go to you with our questions as the one who holds all the answers. And that if we don't receive the answer that we're seeking, we'll catch a glimpse of you and that'll be enough. And to remember as we go to you that there is one pleading our case before you. His name is Jesus, and he will come again to receive us to himself so that we may be with you forever. Thank you for being a God who's present and who listens. In the name of Jesus, our advocate, I pray. Amen. Amen.